You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. I see the crystal raindrops fall and the beauty of it all is when the sun comes shining through to make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime and I want to spend some time with you just the two of us we can make it if we try Hi, and welcome to episode 120.1 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Our longtime listeners will note that point one means there's somebody not here, and in that case, that somebody is Nathan Gilmore, who is packing for Disney World, and who is unhappy about it as a person is legally allowed to be about going to a theme park. <laughs> but I'm here. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, and I am joined by our regular co-host this semester, uh, Danny Anderson, who, like Nathan, is a assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's it going, Danny? I'm doing all right tonight, Michael. I feel a little weird that Nathan's not here. I feel like I'm like rummaging through his house while he's gone or something. And, and... <laughs> we, we just talk crap about him for an hour. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe this is a better show than <laughs> what I, I could have come up with otherwise. So, yeah. I, I'm mostly weirded out that we're... Uh, Recording at night, I was I was telling Danny before the show began that this is the first episode of this show ever to be recorded after 3 p.m. Because normally, uh, you know, Nathan Nathan can't do it. So uh, <laughs> usually we do it in the mornings or the afternoons. So as someone who is at his best in the evenings, I am very pleased. Anyway, um, our topic for today is Alice Munro, and in particular her first book of short stories, Dance of the Happy Shades. But before we get there, we have a record amount of listener feedback. Um, Danny, why don't you go first? Why don't you read one of the ones we got there? Okay, sure thing. I have an email, Michael, from uh, Michael Butts. Um, it says, Dear Christian Humanists, before I begin, I want to thank y'all for the great shows and podcasts. You gave me the one with y'all because you know I'm a northerner and I, I can't say it pronounce- appropriately. But uh, before thank I begin, you alls. <laughs> I want to thank y'all for the uh, great shows and podcasts. They are a real treat and get me through some of the long drives, uh, some long drives with information and culture. I have emailed once before asking about being an armchair philosopher, and my wife says you'd think I won the lottery with how excited I was to be responded to. Well, he should be very happy if it's the second time. Then, uh, Since then, I've been boning up, insert giggles, on my philosophy and enjoy the subject a lot. Uh, please keep up the great work, all four of y'all. Uh, now on to some show suggestions. Not that I think what you talk about isn't interesting, but if y'all are taking them, I'll give some. Uh, baseball, that's a cool topic. Uh, maybe a, a spring one for you guys. Um, movie adaptations of literature. Uh, time travel. Which is, <laughs> you love the Back to the Future movies, Michael. That might be right up your alley. Yeah, I do love Back uh, to the Future. Uh, and baseball again. So, <laughs> uh, superheroes and the martial arts. Uh, that concludes my, excuse me, that it concludes my list of interests. I mean, serious show topics. Uh, please keep up the great work and receive this email in the spirit it is given. Michael Butts. Um, what do you think about those? I, I kind of like uh, many of those topics. I think many of those topics have actually already been covered on this podcast to some degree or another. We have a sports episode from the second season that in which we talk about baseball in some detail. We definitely have a superheroes episode. It was a couple years ago. David Grubbs helped it. Mm. Um, we kind of did a movie adaptation of literature. One of our year-end episodes, it must have been the last couple of years, was called Great Book, Lousy Movie. I mean, that, ah. that's probably not exactly what he's looking for, but that is where we we talk about, well, basically, I think I devised the topic as a way to get Grubbs yelling about the Robert Zemeckis Beowulf, which had <laughs> been our, our whipping boy on the show for several years at that point. And as far as the martial arts, um, our, the most recent episode of Christian Humanist Profiles is an interview with Dr. Charles Hackney, Nathan did, uh, that talks about the martial arts in the context of the virtues. So some of these topics have been kind of covered before. I see. All right. 
There's always new superhero movies coming out, though. That's um, true. I, we, uh... could, we could probably do a whole other episode on superheroes. <laughs> I don't remember much of what was said, except that David Grubbs asked me about other Western manifestations of the superhero myth, and I misread the question and only prepared things about the Western. Ah. So... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so maybe we are due for another one. All right. Well, we also have an email here from our uh, our faithful listener, K Motor. He says, hello, everybody. Just listen to your episode on metamodernism, and it is interesting. Maybe you could say that this is an imperfect reconstruction of modernism or a deconstruction of the postmodernism. I could not help, since I've been spending my time this semester reading Thomas Hobbes and John Locke with Rousseau on the way, while sneaking in some existential reading while I can. Now that the insanity of midterms is over, I can finally function like a semi-normal human being. I think we all know what that's like. Almost, yeah. So. Uh, some, some new suggestions for topics. Kierkegaard's fear and trembling or stages on life's way since this year is his bicentennial. An episode on Toni Morrison, keeping with the modernism to postmodernism theme, who I haven't read yet. Or, uh, him, I, I have read Toni Morrison. Okay. Or if you guys <laughs> want to do something that's sort of topical, since I know how you guys love staying current, slave narratives. For example, Frederick Douglass, Solomon Northrup, Harriet Jacobs. That's all I can think of for now. Yeah, the slave narratives, that would be an awesome episode. That would be really interesting. Yeah, I could do that too. We might have to get Gilmore to uh, to host that one so that he could ask us questions. Because <laughs> I, I, I could I, I could at least talk about Jacobs and Douglas. Sure, but so many of those, particularly Jacobs. I mean, there there are so many like Old Testament court sorts of uh, parallels that I'm sure Nathan could go all theological on us there. Thank you, he says, for doing two of my previous suggestions so far. I really appreciate that. I'm hoping the existentialism episode is in the writing stages now, and I look forward to your interesting commentary. That's so fun. I mean, we've been doing this show for four years now. I existentialism is the academic area I know best, and yet we have not done an episode on it. <laughs> he says, P.S. Michael, I can assure you as a Southerner, I have no longing for the lost cause, as some causes need to stay lost, lest it becomes meta. And this is coming from a big fan of modernist literature. Yeah, I wondered about that after I said it on the podcast. When I said that the Southerner is kind of born and bred in the lost cause, I did not mean that I want that particular cause to keep going. Just that just that I think Southerners are born with this feeling for the underdog, a feeling for the hopeless um, fight. Not, I, I certainly did not mean to suggest that I want... Uh, I, I want the uh, South to reconstitute itself along the 1860 lines. Take up the war against Northern aggression. Yeah, the, the war to prevent Southern independence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we have an email from one of Nathan's former students. Would you like to read part of that, Danny? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, this is from Seth Porch, who I actually did get to meet, I think. I don't know if he remembers that, but uh, right as I was arriving he was leaving but uh says good morning dr gilmore so i uh listened to the christian humanist podcast for the first time late last night and thoroughly enjoyed it uh, with an exclamation point i will have to work on getting caught up with you guys little by little fascinating discussion and quite frankly just a lot of fun to listen to and then he goes on uh quite a lengthy um analysis or, or uh you know uh discourse about uh, nietzsche and uh and Dante particularly, and also, and so Nathan would like to, uh, hold off on that. And he wants to answer those when he's here. And so, uh, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there to, uh, Mr. Porch that we, uh, do appreciate you and, uh, that Nathan is, uh, very anxious to answer these, but he, uh, wants to make sure he can do it personally. That's right. He didn't trust us to answer them. But, yeah. Well, probably rightfully so on my account. So, yeah. And then we have an email that came in just a few minutes ago from uh, listener Steve Smith. He says, hey guys, great episode as usual. After listening, I checked out some more info on the movie, the, the movie being God is Dead. Or, or, the movie's called God's Not Dead, isn't it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, it kind of <laughs> defeats itself. And, and so he, he did some research into the, into the movie and discovered the book of the same name by Rice Brooks. I was surprised that you did not mention it. Perhaps you did in passing, as it claims to be the, quote, evidence behind the movie. I did not mention it in passing because I did not know this book existed. I Neither did I. I uh, just through Facebook, I saw the uh, trailers being uh, shared repeatedly. And so that's the only uh, uh, exposure to it I had at that point. So but this is good to know, though. 
I have not read the book, he says, beyond the e-version sample provided by Amazon. Brooks does mention the Time article where, quote, the writers were reflecting upon the famous claim made by 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche that God is dead. But I'm not sure he elaborates any further on Nietzsche or philosophy. I did find the book here locally, so I thought I'd pick up a copy and give it a read. Uh, let me know if you are interested in hearing my thoughts. I would be, uh, yeah. if, uh, if, if he really wants to know. I think that would be interesting. Especially since it means we wouldn't have to read the book. <laughs> the evidence behind the, I'm, I'm very interested to see what it says. Is it like, like a, it, it sounds like, I don't know, the word evidence just makes me think of Josh McDowell. Um, yeah, well, I'm thinking of sort of the Ken Ham kind of... Uh, oh, even worse. Theory. Yeah, yeah, so... Um, not that I want to, I have no idea, so I don't want to associate people who don't need to be associated. But well, Maybe you know. the evidence is that God is uh, living on the inside, roaring like a lion. <laughs> Am I really going to have to be the least bitter person on this <laughs> podcast? I think today you might have to be. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's move on to our, the topic at hand, which is, again, Alice Munro's first book of short stories, uh, Dance of the Happy Shades. Now, she has dozens and dozens of books of short stories and as far as i know that's all she's written i i uh i think she wrote a few memoir pieces for the new yorker but i don't think she's ever written a full memoir and while her third book of short stories is i think it's called lives of girls and women is sometimes classed as a novel it actually seems to be more of a short story cycle which i i think of as short stories and not novels anyway i guess it how it all depends on how you uh how you define winesburg ohio right uh, yes, right. So if you think Winesburg, Ohio is a novel, then Alice Munro wrote one novel. And if not, she wrote a bunch of short stories. Hmm. Before we get into talking specifically about the stories in this collection, let's talk about Monroe in general. Danny, can you give us a brief biographical sketch of her? Talk about where uh, Dance of the Happy Shades fits in? Sure. Uh, and I do also believe that she has not written novels, and I don't believe she considers that a novel. Um, in fact, I, you know, I've read some interviews with her, and I think she's very kind of proudly... Um, dedicated to the short story form. And, and, and uh, that's one of the things that was kind of surprising about her winning the Nobel, right? Because, right. Yeah. We, yes, all of the reasons they typically don't give it to American writers uh, is because of sort of provinciality and these sorts of things, all of the things that she seems to um, represent in many ways. And so I was very happy, actually, that she got it. And when actually, I had not read any Alice Monroe until for, except for in preparation for this podcast. And I'm extremely impressed with this collection of short stories. They're just wonderful. And, and uh, I think it's uh, a well-deserved honor um, that, that she has uh, finally been recognized. And I hope that uh, this kind of scuttles some of the Nobel's um, uh, pseudo reasons for giving it to always obscure writers that no one reads. Um, and what uh, Danny is saying, if you're trying to read between the lines, is <laughs> give the Nobel to Philip Roth before he dies. <laughs> this is what I was trying to say. You're right. Um, <laughs> you missed your chance with Updike. Roth is still alive for now. Give him the Nobel Prize. And he's 80. Come on now. Uh, yes. Well, uh, it's, it's funny because they, they people were saying he wasn't going to get it this year because he said he was done with writing. But Alice Monroe said in 2012 that she was done with writing too. Yeah. So it's it's it, it, it the parallels are kind of funny. I, I mean, yeah. not that she didn't deserve it, but sometimes it does seem like the Nobel Prize Committee is just kind of thumbing their nose at Americans. Yes, I, maybe I, for good reason. Uh, possibly, yeah, yeah. Um, and I really don't think Roth cares as much as I do. But um, so, um, but as far as back to Monroe, um, uh, well deserved. I just wanted to kind of uh, make sure that that's clear. This is just really wonderful writing, and and a short the short story is something I really admire as a as a form too. And I think it's great that it's getting um, I think a long overdue respect. So, um, so but she has not written novels, uh, and I think she prefers the discipline that comes with the short story. And and I think that that's kind of a uh, uh, something that you see in the craft of these things once you sit down to read with them. And um, as you said, the Dance of the Happy Shades is her first collection. Uh, she was uh, born in a uh, very kind of rural Canadian small town that apparently is very much like the American Midwest that sort of that I grew up in. And um, and her father, very working class, he was a, uh, this is, a, I think, a particularly Canadian industry, but a mink and fox farmer. Um, but uh, to me, that's uh, uh, this. It's somewhat romantic, actually, to think about that lifestyle, and, and I think that you can see a lot of that uh, coming to uh, life in, uh, in in her stories. You can really see a connection to that life. When you get a couple stories. of stories here about uh, fox breeders and yeah, 
yeah, and then there's one scene where he's capturing minks in the uh, or mink. I don't know what the plural is for minks, but uh, <laughs> uh, in the uh, in the river. And so yeah, it's obviously uh, found its way into her fiction. Um, <clears throat> well, it's, but coming from no money, she. Uh, went to college for two years uh, because, I mean, there was a scholarship that was good for two years. And basically, she knew she was only going to be able to go for those two years. And so she went for her two years, got married right after she was done um, and started having babies. Um, and from the beginning of her married life, she was a, a serious writer. And in her early 20s began publishing some of the stories that found its way eventually into this collection. Um, and uh, it's interesting. I read an interview with her in the Paris Review, I believe. Uh, this was, I think, mid-career interview. And uh, she kind of um, uh, credits having babies with some of her uh, – this is not meant to be a pun, but productivity. Uh, that's just the, the appropriate word here. Um, the, because she felt like as soon as the baby came, she would not have time to write. So while she was pregnant, she kept writing furiously. And I thought that was a really interesting uh, uh, just story about her own process. But uh, from the beginning, like I said, she was a, a serious writer. Um, and uh, she published things very frequently in The New Yorker. Um, the Tamarack Review, uh, and then at 36, her first collection is finally published. Uh, it was apparently initially supposed to be an anthology with two other uh, presumably Canadian writers, uh, but that apparently fell through, and the rest is history. And the stories in this collection had been written over, a, I think, about a 15-year period from her early 20s until her mid-30s. I believe three of them, and I don't know which three, were uh, written for this volume. Uh, the other ones were collected from other Walker publications. Walker Brothers Cowboy is definitely one of them. I have a list somewhere. Okay. I keep almost obsessive track of where things are published in my notes. Ah. But apparently not that obsessive because I don't have... <laughs> I have a list of what was published earlier, but I don't have a list of what what was published for the first time. So ah. okay. Walker Brothers Cowboy is definitely one of the new ones, though. Okay. And uh, upon its publication, it won Canada's most uh, prestigious literary, literary prize that year, which is, uh, I believe, called the Governor General's Award. Um, and uh, so from the beginning, I mean, it was sort of a late start for a writer, I mean, of a, for a publisher of books, at least. Um, she, uh, uh, but uh, like always focused on the short story and was rewarded for that immediately. And, and she continued with that for uh, basically the rest of her career. Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to forget because because her first book is published in 1968 that she's actually older than Updike and Roth. I mean, she was born in 1931. Mhm. So, um yeah, she she feels in a weird way more modern than they do, even though she doesn't have any of either of their kind of pyrotechnics. Right. Yes. Um restraint is uh like uh, like her skill. I will talk about what makes her fiction work, but yeah, she doesn't quite fit in with the sort of uh, 20th century kind of American male writer uh, uh, very, very but neatly. Much to her credit. I mean, I, I think of her, I think of her as almost consummately a woman writer and my, my wife hates it when I talk about this, about the idea <laughs> that there's a way, there's a way to write like a woman, but um, Monroe, I think writes like a woman in the best possible way. Mm. Um, I, there, there's something very quiet and, oh man, man uh, my wife is going to kill me when she hears this. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to resist putting any other adjectives on it because any I do is going to make it sound like I'm saying that women should be demure and that's not what I mean. But there's a feminine quality to Monroe's writing that I can't quite explain. Yes. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, well, if it gets to the, uh, oh, I don't know, the Christavian idea of, uh, the symbolic and the semiotic and that sort of thing. I'm not sure, but, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, I guess that's six. See, that's that's the thing. Victoria loves six. But if I, if I if I start talking about women writing like women, she gets angry. <laughs> well, um, next I'd like to we, we've kind of located her biographically, but I'd also now I'd like to locate her writing in the grand scheme of twentieth century literature. It's it is safe to say she's one of the two or three most important Canadian writers of all time, especially now that she's become either the first or the second Canadian to win the Nobel Prize. And that all depends on whether you count Saul Bellow, who was born in Montreal but moved to Chicago at a pretty young age. My understanding is Canadians don't count him because he renounced his Canadian citizenship. Ah, well, and you know, Augie March begins. I'm an American, right? Yeah, so, Chicago, uh, <laughs> Chicago born. Yeah, so so I I don't think most people count Bellow, although it is worth noting he is technically Canadian. Right. Um, 
what other connections did you notice between Monroe and uh, other other authors, either of her generation or the generations around her, or you know, go back to Dante and and uh, <laughs> Boccaccio if you'd like to. Well, Cynthia Ozick, I think, famously calls her our Chekhov, and and I think that's a really um, apropos uh, comparison in the the nature of these stories. They're very uh, they're crafted so beautifully and, and they're so spare and, and it's nothing really happens, right? It's just sort of a painting. It's creating a little world that exists um, like independently of, of, uh, of the, our world. And, and so I do think that that's a, a fair comparison uh, right there. But um, I also, and this I guess is going back on something I just said, um, I contain multitudes, uh, but uh, uh, so I contradict myself. And so, uh, and so, and so does Monroe. <laughs> See, that's that's right. right. We're not we're, we're not we're not boxing her in. <laughs> right, right. But I also I was reminded very much of Bernard Malamud's short stories. Um, if you've ever read many of his short stories, there is a of a quaintness to them, and, and just a, a sort of quietness to those stories as they kind of build a, a world of of, of I, just the cliche of quiet desperation. Uh, and I, I do see a lot of. Uh, similarities there. I, I wouldn't, the, the, obviously the subject matter is entirely different and very often Malamud gets kind of magical, right? And, and, and I didn't see much of that in this, uh, in these collections. These are very kind of realistic. And, um, and yet, uh, there is sort of a, a loving care taken to, uh, create images basically of working class people and, and, and sort of, uh, we'll talk about class I'm sure later, but, uh, Class uh, is like inescapable in both of these uh, uh, fictional worlds. And so if you have read any Bernard Malamud short stories, and if you haven't, you should. <laughs> but uh, if you have read, I think that uh, you'll see sort of a, like a, a, a kindred uh, approach basically in, uh, in Monroe. Yeah, but even even Malamud, and I, I agree with you about the, the kind of little world they build up, but the, uh, even Malamud calls attention to his language in a way Monroe doesn't. Her her language is, I, I'm not at all saying it's not artful, because of course it is, but it, but it is almost transparent. Mm. Uh, I mean, you, you do not think about the way she's writing when you read an Alice Monroe short story. You you think about the, the world she's created. Whereas, whereas Malamud's writing, to me, not like Updike, of course, not like Roth, not like Saul Bellow, but Malamud's writing to me still seems to be calling attention to itself. I mean, I can see that in terms of the the language and sort of like the, the Yiddish inflection. I, I mean, I can see that. But to me, that's part of the of the character development, really. The language is, is intricately developed or uh, connected to the development of character. Uh, and I, I do feel like um, uh, that's similar. I, I'm not saying it's a, it's a one-to-one comparison, but if you're looking for like a comparison, just the quietness of these little stories uh, do remind me uh, of, of Malamud. But I do see your point. That's actually a point well taken now that, I'm, now that you've mentioned it and I'm thinking about it. Um, um, I also, when I'm thinking about her, in, in the time she's writing particularly, I'm sort of uh, reminded of my friend, uh, give a shout out to Wells Addington, uh, my friend who recently finished his dissertation, but he was writing about the short story kind of renaissance of the 70s, and, uh, and particularly about people like Cheever and, and that sort of thing. And I, and I kind of see her in this sort of moment where the New Yorker is this sort of organ for uh, putting out these short stories and the the uh, I guess I'm going to get all materialist. Uh, think this is out to Coyle Neal uh, uh, again. Uh, but the uh, the uh, the material kind of requirements of fiction that gets published in the New Yorker creates a style, right? And I'm yeah. wondering how much of that um, creates the consistent style that you see, sort of that you're talking about. This kind of spare, not calling attention to the language, no pyrotechnics. And, and I, I sort of see here as part of this. Um, renaissance of short stories that is uh inseparable from the uh the publishing industry in which they arise and and, I, and so i'm thinking of people like cheever and oh, carver cheever for sure and carver too you're right yeah um i see i see a lot of those and and yeah you get that kind of oh how, how best to describe the the new yorker short story of the 60s and 70s it's like hollowed out somehow right i mean not in the sense of being bad not in the sense of not having something to say but in the sense of being almost purposely spiritually empty not, yeah, not, not so much the story is empty as the story is about emptiness 
Yes, it's about sort of restraint and these sorts of things. And there's sort of a, a like I said, I can't think of another word, but discipline um, that is gets just sort of imposed upon the stories that end up getting published. And therefore, you write more stories like that. And um, and, and, and she publishes many, many short stories in The New Yorker, although none from this collection. But but definitely The New Yorker is a major publisher of her work from, I think, the early 80s on. And, and every so often you still see one or saw one since she says she's retired in The New Yorker. Yeah. Which is where I first encountered her. I just read an article two days ago, I think, about uh, some some – it's sort of like a, a dishy tell-all about Tina Brown and her tenure at The New Yorker. <laughs> and, and, and he was talking about showing her an Alice Monroe short story and she didn't think much of it and then – a few weeks later, he showed her the same short story, and she says, "I love it. Let's gotta put this thing in." And so, uh, <laughs> so now that you mentioned the New Yorker, I'm remembering that. So, but to, to not like Alice Monroe's like that—that that would be like not having a soul, almost, wouldn't it? I mean, it, it would—it would be the—it would be a symptom of some sort of deep spiritual lack, maybe of yes. the sort she's writing about. Yes, and I, I do. In that way, I think that just in the same way that my students respond really well to Malamud, even though they, you know, are probably never made to read him before my class. But um, I feel like I'm going to start finding ways to teach Monroe because I do think students will react very well. Um, People who aren't like literary minded, I think, will find something really kind of lovely about these stories and and just kind of um, just very quietly inspirational. The other person that I, I see in these in these stories is Willa Cather, who, mm. I, I mean, ironically enough, one of our listeners, I think it might have been Todd Pedler, a- asked us to do an episode on. But, I, I mean, I think if you're a Willa Cather fan and, and you don't know Alice Munro, it is, is worth checking out. Because like Cather, she creates these these little tragedies that happen in the lives of utterly unremarkable people. Right. I mean, there's there's nothing important about uh, about most of most of these characters. And just like there's nothing important about most of Cather's characters, Song of the Lark notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and yet somehow in telling the story, these people are raised to not sainthood exactly, because you, you would never give that to them. But importance they're 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 given a kind of cosmic importance they wouldn't otherwise have and what else is what else is uh realist fiction for if not to elevate the unimportant to the important Mm. and to to demonstrate that it was important the whole time and we just couldn't recognize it it's dignity right i mean there's sort of a sense of uh of uh admiration for people who don't have to be special to be special (laughs) and it it took me 10 years of reading cather to start liking her because her writing too feels very feminine to me, mm. and I had to wait Uh-oh. for some of my own testosterone to burn off before I could uh, I could sit down and appreciate. Because I mean, you you read a Cather novel and you think, why has nothing happened? Mm. You know, just just like I'm, I'm sure if I'd read these stories when I was twenty, I would have thought, how come nothing happens in most of them? But now I don't want anything to happen. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want I don't I don't want there to be an explosion. You know. And in the interview I read with Monroe, she mentions that she uh, uh, that she doesn't really she doesn't show her work to anybody, and she's very picky about her editors. And she specifically said that uh, people who complain about things not happening just aren't going to work very well with my work. And so, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that is true. Yeah, can you imagine? Yeah, you, no. you imagine getting a fourteen-year-old boy as an editor, <laughs> or Nathan? Um, I think. You know. Ouch. Um, <laughs> do you, do you uh do you feel comfortable enough to try to situate her in Canadian literature? Uh I do not actually. Yeah, me neither. I, yeah, just, <laughs> just, <laughs> I'm sorry Canadian listeners. It's not that yeah. we it's it's not that we look down on your country's cultural achievements. It's just that we're ignorant of them. So yes. uh, rather rather than embarrass ourselves and you, we will just uh keep quiet. <laughs> and not mention Rob Ford. So um <laughs> Well, let's move on um, to the particular stories in uh, Dance of the Happy Shades. Um, Dan- Danny, one of the things you said was interesting to you about these stories is the way she builds up these little worlds. Tell me about the specific locales that these stories take place in. Well, I, they're very much expressions of the uh, the material conditions, I think, that have um, created the characters themselves. So in some ways... These people don't exist 
outside. They, they really can't really exist outside of the environment that they're in. Uh, and there's one, you know, a couple, I mean, each of these, you could talk about many of these stories, but there's one story where she, uh, really interestingly writes from the perspective of a kind of lecherous young man picking up girls. Uh, uh, in Thanks this, for the ride, I think is the name of that story. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, picking up girls in this uh, small town and they're, they're coming from sort of a wealthy sort of middle class uh, town and they're coming into this sort of lower class town in order to sort of you know, have their way with girls who don't matter, basically, I mean, is what it, it comes down to. And and there's a sense that the girls in that community know that about themselves and, and that their uh, environment is almost like destined them to be that way. And so uh, other, uh, there's a, another story, um, Shining Houses, I think, Shining Little Houses or uh-huh. something like that. Yeah, the, the Shining um, Houses. The Shining Houses. And where there's a, uh, basically a new, development that's near that's that's sprung up and right in the middle of it is this old stalwart of this old way of life uh and so this old lady who people don't really like we're never given like a particularly positive image of her she does seem a little petty and and strange and off-putting um but she sort of you know has chickens and and she has this sort of old farm life but all around her you're just the what is created by monroe's words is this sort of these shining houses these sort of new suburban developments and inside those houses the kind of consumer mentality that gave rise to the buildings themselves motivate the characters uh and the sort of uh dilemma in that story is uh everybody else in this town or this community wants to leverage some sort of legal loophole to make her get get out of her area so their property values don't go down um and then there's this sort of one resident who for no reason that we're told um decides that she just can't sign the petition and so there's a uh the conflict of between class and economics um are sort of just embodied in these like amazing descriptions of 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 landscape yeah and and the, the stories are are many of them are are very very interested on in, in that that combination of of class and lo- location right and in in particular a lot of these stories feature some sort of collision between a lo- lower class person and a reasonably middle class person i mean i don't think other than the story sunday afternoon which is about a maid I don't. I don't think we really meet a whole lot of upper upper class people, right? No, they're sort of like middle managers, if you can imagine that. Sort of like the foremans of the factories and that sort of thing. They come in. But, yeah. But what what happens is when you when you get these descriptions of the rich people's houses, um, or the middle class, excuse me, again, middle class people's houses, Monroe tends to describe them as being artificial. So, so like this is from the time of death. Which is, I think, the earliest story in here. And here we have a uh, a little girl who who there, there's been a family tragedy, and she's been sent to a neighbor's house, and the neighbor is more well off. And listen to what Monroe says: Patricia was very polite in Mrs. McGee's house. It was not as nice as some of the houses uptown, but it was covered on the outside with imitation brick, and inside it had an imitation fireplace, as well as a fern and a basket. It was not like the other houses along the highway. And uh, and that that repetition of the word imitation in this house with these people who are perfectly nice who are not at all phony who who are taking care of her is very interesting to me because it's as it's as though to be even middle class is to give in to some sort of well inauthenticity to return to a uh return to a word from earlier in the season mm-hmm. i don't know what to do with that though <laughs> but fortunately, I'm not writing a paper. <laughs> right. No, no. No, but I mean, it is uh, the other houses, like the old lady with the chicken. I mean, the chickens. They're, it's very much. They're shining. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So, that shining sort of has this veneer to it, like in, inherent in the word shining, right? And so, and that's completely, um, it seems artificial, whereas these other older communities seem almost as if they've come out of nature them, itself. And it seems they're. Um, much more sort of uh, organic and and sort of uh, dirty and and the sort of things that you associate with with natural landscapes are, are, the, are the way that they're described. And so, no, I see what you're saying. That's a really good point. And then, I mean, back to 
thanks for the ride. What what she seems to be saying about these poor people who have been, I, I think you're you're very right to say that they're conditioned by their environment to expect nothing other than their environment. What she describes that as is a kind of radical knowledge, right? Because because the the narrator of that story talks about how how nobody he knows is is uh, knows anything, that, that, and that nobody he's met in this town is as innocent as everybody he knows. Yes. Yes, they they sort of um yeah, they don't pretend, right? There's no sort of pretense about their role in society. And, and, and as you're talking, I found a quote from that story actually. So if it's okay. No, no, um, go ahead, please. This is like I think in stark contrast to the to the veneer that you were describing. This is the town that the the two sort of wealthy kid boys come into to find girls. It was a town of unpaved, wide, sandy streets and bare yards. So it, all of those adjectives are like sand from the ocean and unpaved. I mean, it's also right out of, uh, out of nature. Only the hardy things like red and yellow uh, nasturtums, nasturtiums or lilac bush with brown curled leaves grew out of that cracked earth. The houses were set wide apart with their own pumps and sheds and privies out behind. Most of them were built of wood and painted green gray or gray or yellow. The trees that grew there were like were big willows or poplars, their fine leaves grayed with the dust. There were no trees along the main street, but spaces of tall grass and dandelions and blowing thistles, open country between the store buildings. And so um, even th- this sort of uh, more kind of, I guess, decadent, uh, not decadent, but sort of decayed uh, landscape, the, the, the poverty stricken one is is everything that's not artifice. It's just like nature is practically um, covering it over. Uh, and so um, so I think that that's sort of uh, one way that she uh kind of almost casts a suspicious eye on progress. Yeah, and, and yeah, and and again, all this all this is connected with the the kind of suburban proponents of progress being innocent in a bad way, right? They 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 don't know what the world is actually like because they've created these perfect little communities for themselves. Yes. Yeah, that's that's exactly sort of what I uh what I gather. Um uh, and then I don't know while we're on this subject in this story, um, he at one point meets up with the girl that sort of inevitably he's going to sleep with that night and, and leave. Um, uh, and her mother basically interviews him and and uh, and uh, essentially gives you the impression that she knows what this is all about, right? And she's sort of accepting of it in some ways. So Lois's mother and I sat down on the Chesterfield. She began to make conversation, giving this the, uh, the date interpretation. I noticed the smell in the house, the smell of stale, uh, small rooms, bedclothes, frying, washing, and medicated ointments, and dirt, And uh, though it did not look dirty. Lois's mother said, that's a nice car you got out front. Is that your car? My father's. Isn't that lovely? Your father has such a nice car. I always think it's lovely for people to have things. I've got no time for these people that's just eaten up with malice and envy. I say it's lovely. I bet your mother, every time she wants anything, she just goes down to the store and buys it. New coat, bedspreads, pots and pans. What does your father do? Is he a lawyer or a doctor or something like that? Uh, and so there's the sense that the people growing up in this environment that smells like dirt, right, um, sort of know their place. And it's ethical to not be envious in some ways. And so she's happy that this guy is going to come sleep with her daughter because he has things and, and she should be proud of him for that. So it's a very strange moment. Yeah. And that story in general is fairly befuddling. I mean, it has some, some really beautiful passages. The, the description of what happens after he does sleep with, with Lois is, I mean, just beautifully sad, Mm. but uh, I don't know what to make of that story in a lot of ways. I was taken aback, and I guess this is my own sort of faulty imagination, that it occurred to me well into it that it was a, a male voice. The, the, the narrator, as a, as a, character, as a you know, first-person protagonist narrator, uh, was, a, um, uh, was, the, was a male. And I just was expecting it to be a female. Every other voice I had read to that point was a, a female like narrator. And so like the fact that it suddenly occurred to me that this is a man <laughs> trying to pick up chicks basically, uh, that, that just sort of like, 
uh, threw me off in a way it disoriented me, I guess. And this is what fiction is for, uh, in a way that it took the rest of the story for me to recover. And so it's just wonderful, wonderfully written. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, that was one of my very favorites as well, but again, befuddling. <laughs> Do you have anything else to say about class? Uh, did you make it to Sunday morning? Sunday afternoon, rather? Uh, I did not. I'm sorry. S- Sunday afternoon. Um, you, sh- uh, you should go back and read that one. It, it is. Um, it's it's about a maid who, who she's a she comes from a poor background and she's kind of stuck in this house of perfectly nice, but at the, at the same time not perfectly nice rich people who who keep her keep her at, at arm's length and keep her at beck and call. And her only friend there, she's seventeen, and her only friend is like a twelve or thirteen year old girl. Um, and so you, you get this, um, you, 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 again, it's very much like the, uh, the other passage I read from, uh, uh, I can't even remember the name of the story, the time of death, uh, where, where, where you get this, this poor person kind of suddenly exposed to the class above her and, and finding it oddly empty, uh, and kind of sad making. Yeah. She says, um, nothing was the matter, but she felt heavy, heavy with the heat and tired and uncaring, hearing all around her an incomprehensible faint noise of other people's lives, of boats and cars and dances, and seeing this street that promised island in a harsh and continuous dazzle of sun. She could not make a sound here, not a dent. So, I I mean, this is a role that she has to play, and yet she doesn't fit into it. And yet it's gorgeous, right? I mean, the description yeah. of that is just gorgeous. Right. Yeah, and well, here's another one. You get, again, the, 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 the same kind of interest in surface and class. In spite of the heat, there was no blur on the day up here. Everything, the stone and white stucco houses, the flowers, the flower-colored cars, looked hard and glittering, exact and perfect. There was no haphazard thing in sight. The street, like an advertisement, had an almost aggressive look of bright summer spirits. Alva felt dazzled by this, by the laughter, by people whose lives were relevant to the street. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, let's move on. Uh, th- these stories are not by any means fixated on gender, right? I mean, even though I called her a woman who writes like a woman. Um, I do think the story The Office in particular has some very, very interesting things to say about conflicts between men and women. Danny, can you try to situate that story in 20th century feminist discourse and with the other stories in this collection? Sure thing. Um, I Well, I could try. Uh, uh, I'm sure your wife is going to probably be the better person to ask about this. But um, in that story, I mean, there is like an overt hesitation. The story is about a, uh, a, a young mother or a, a mother uh, who's married and comes to her husband one day and says that she, you know, wants to write. And there's some sort of uh, embarrassment about wanting to do that. There's just like, it's not something you can tell people that you want to do. And if they do sort of not just outwardly laugh at you, there's sort of just a, a, a an accepting sort of a polite uh, dismissal. And so, but she says she needs an office in which to do it basically. Um, and so, and then the whole story then becomes about her experience having rented out this office, this former chiropractor's office um, uh, to, uh, uh, to write in. And so in the experience she has with her landlord, but uh, there's a hesitation, I guess, in the story to allow place a, a, a women, a place in a, a professional space. Uh, and the, the landlord, when he rents her the office and finds out what she's doing, um, keeps bringing her these sort of objects, these uh, domestic uh, objects like plants and, and these sorts of things, as if um, a way to kind of say, this is a man's sort of uh, environment and, and your presence here is strange, right? Um, and so uh, as far as, and, he, and then he keeps this sort of uh, paternalistic watch over her and this becomes the conflict. There is Things do happen in that story. Someone uh, graffitis a bathroom wall. Which is, yeah, um, true. That's, that's <laughs> one of the bigger things that happens in this collection. <laughs> yes. Um, um, and so I'm sort of reminded, I mean, and I feel like in some ways the protagonist, the, the, the woman writer in that story, um, puts herself in this position. It's as if she can't escape 
um, the sort of male hegemony uh, that's uh, been imposed upon her. And I, I'm reminded of uh, Virginia Woolf and the uh, room of one's own and, and the sort of uh, difficulty of writing with male language, right? And, and it's so almost infuriating um, that she cannot uh, get herself to associate writing with a domestic space. And so uh, for, for no really good reason, she talks about how writing just isn't done in a house with children in it. That's, that's for other things. And so for, for a woman she, now, because she, she yes. says a man could write at home in the house with children. Yes. But, but it's right. not possible it, for a woman. Right. And so she needs an office. Uh, and so this office is a place that implies order and unity uh, in a way that very clearly evokes uh, the kind of uh, symbolic and, and phallocentrism and, and all that sort of thing. And I, I talked to mentioned briefly about Chris Dave. I'd rather not get too deeply into that. If you don't mind. But uh, um, but yeah, so I, I think that it's I think that it's a, a really clear. um, um Oh, I don't know, like intervention, I guess, in the difficulties that uh, women face uh, in a, uh, I mean, we talked before situating her with Roth and Updike and Malin, but I mean, this is sort of a man's world that she's sort of entering. And, and I think that that's, uh, it's kind of a beautiful thing. Um, now as to, the story is a beautiful thing, not <laughs> the situation, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> Women's oppression is not a beautiful thing. <laughs> no, that's not what I meant at all. Um, but as far as where it dovetails uh, with other stories in the collection, I actually weirdly kind of want to go back to um, Thanks for the Ride uh, when I think about this because of all the stories – I'm sorry, not Thanks for the Ride. Uh, the um, – oh, what's the story where the girl's babysitting and she uh, gets drunk? I forget the name of it. Uh, uh, An Ounce of Cure. Yes, an ounce of cure. Uh, this is a story that very much reminds me of a Jane Austen story, uh, and, and it is very aware of class. Uh, this is a, a you know a poorer girl who comes from a, uh, a a family that doesn't drink, and and she's babysitting for this wealthier family, and, and so she ends up sort of as a fish out of water, and you get this image of uh, of uh, like a, a woman's limitation, basically, uh, and so I that association I make with Jane Austen, like for whatever reason for that story. And it's very funny, like a James, Jane Austen story. Um, uh, I, I felt like that is a place where I'm also seeing a women, a woman's, uh, perspective, uh, on, on a, you know, a male world. And so I, I think in weird ways it dovetails with a story that is really nothing like it. <laughs> Although it's worth, worth noting. It's a, it's a woman who at least tries to save the day in that story as well. You have this kind of knowing, cooler girl at the at the high school who comes and tries to clean up the mess although and doesn't that remind you of a jane austen character though i mean yeah, that's uh, true. That's true. Fair <laughs> enough. so yeah yeah no no so it's, it's interesting no I, that's one of my favorite ones in the collection though it because it was so unexpectedly funny but 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 the office i think is my favorite story in the collection yeah i really i really liked the office the other one i liked and that i thought obviously even from the title has a lot to say about Gender is Boys and Girls, mm -hmm. which is one of the ones that takes place on the Fox Farm. And it, it involves this, this girl who essentially does not want to be a girl once she realizes what sort of um, what sort of constraints are going to be put on her because, because of her gender. Mm -hmm. um, like her grandmother says, girls don't slam doors like that. Girls keep their knees together when they sit down. And worse still, when I ask some questions, that's none of girls' business. I continued to slam the doors and sit as awkwardly as possible, thinking that by such measures I kept myself free. So she's she's determined to kind of escape her gender because her, her gender can be conceived in this rural, early, well, mid, mid I suppose, 20th century environment as, as nothing but a set of constraints, right? And then what mm -hmm. happens is... Um, they kill horses on this farm to feed to the fox. That's what the foxes eat. They eat horse meat. And there is a, uh, there, there is a horse, Flora, who is, she's an old mare and they're going to kill her. And instead the girl lets her out. Mm. Um, and, and, uh, her father won't even blame her. That's what drives her crazy. Her father won't yell at her. All he says is she's only a girl. Mm. And, and so you you just have this this ultimate victory of her I I I don't want to put it this way but I'm I'm going to put it this way anyway her kind of inborn nature that, yeah. that just just kind of takes over yeah and yet even though I mean those issues are in I mean 
obviously here and, and unignorable, you don't get the sense that these are like polemical sorts of stories. That, oh, they, not that at there's all. Sort of, that there's a political point to be made. It's just sort of part of the environment that she's creating. And, and, and she's like got this perception. She observes it all and, and then like sort of weaves it into this world where it, with those issues, um, those kind of limitations are mixed in with the class issues and mixed in with uh, economic issues and, and, and family relations and mental illness. And, and it's, it's really, it's, uh, it, it's quite remarkable that for someone to address all of that uh, so uh, artfully that it doesn't feel preachy. Oh yeah, yeah. There's, there's absolutely. I mean, I would say the office is actually as close as it comes to preaching at you, and, and that is because the narrator is literally discoursing on what it means to be a woman. But if you look, that part I quoted uh, about about how a man can can work in the home is not what she actually thinks. It's mm-hmm. it is the excuse she plans on giving her husband. Mm-hmm. So even that, even that little bit of preaching is couched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the the art is what's important here, you know, and, and everything else is in service of the art, and that that's a, a notion that speaks very deeply to me, actually. So. The other kind of troubling gender moment, and man, I have no idea what to think about this one, comes at the end of uh, Sunday afternoon. Um, that that is the the maid story, and Alva has the the family is going to go to a. Uh, an island where they own a home for a week. And she is kind of looking forward to it and kind of dreading it because obviously it's going to be a level of opulence she's never experienced before and blah, blah, blah. And right before the end of the story, one of her employer's cousins just kind of comes up and kisses her, which that's, that's not a comfortable moment, right? I mean, you're reading this, there's something very rapey about that. Yeah. Um, And, and and then he says, well, I'll see you. I'll be on the island too. And then, (laughs) Uh, the, the story ends this way. This stranger's touch had eased her. Her body was simply grateful and expectant, and she felt a lightness and a confidence she had not known in this house. So there were things she had not taken into account about herself, about them, and ways of living with them that were not so unreal. She saw it differently now. It was even possible that she wanted to go there to the island. But things always come to get, came together. There was something she would not explore yet, a tender spot. A new and still mysterious humiliation. Mm. <laughs> I got nothing to add to that. That's great. <laughs> the stuff she has to say about gender is is interesting, but not polemical. It, it it raises questions, which, if you listen to last week's episode, you know that's what we want anyway. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, it's safe to say that she is not Monroe is not an author with a primarily theological imagination, right? Yeah. Um, and yet, religion kind of hangs out at the edges of the story of these stories. Um, if Nathan were here, I would ask him to talk about it. But Nathan's not here, which means you're going to have to pretend to be Nathan. So, <laughs> stroke your long beard and uh, tell me about tell me about Monroe's treatment of faith. Uh, Alistair McIntyre. Uh, I'm just um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, um, well, you know, I do see. Um, the moments where religion is sort of brought into it, it's really part of the kind of social milieu. And I'm not sure that it's really any more or less important than uh, careers or, um, uh, you know, other sorts of fact, other sort of social um, factors. And so, I, like, there are moments where you have uh, the, in the, 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 Oh gosh, cowboy! What's the name? I I have to apologize to the listeners. I have a Kindle version of this book, and it drives me crazy because I can't flip through it. And so, uh, the the first story in the collection is uh, Walker Brothers Cowboy. Called? Walker Brothers Cowboy. Um, th- it's about sort of a young girl uh, who gets uh, goes on a sales route with his, her father, and and he ends up like taking her to an old neighborhood, like an older part of life, and and it becomes very apparent that the uh, the people he's taking to her or sort of a, an ex-girlfriend and, and her family. Um, and, but there's all, it becomes also very apparent that they are Catholic. And, and, and so it becomes, um, it's implied at least that there's some sort of, uh, uh, limitation put upon them in this uh, rural community because of this Catholicism. And, and so, I mean, as far as like images of religion, um, I don't have a lot to say about this. This is where we really do, or I really do need Nathan. Uh, and so I might bounce this back to you and see if uh, anything you say I can I can uh, dovetail off of. 
Well, the closest thing to a theological story I found here is that is the title story, Dance of the Happy Shades, which is about really my, it's my favorite in the in the collection. I think it's about um, a kind of washed up piano teacher, a remnant of an earlier age. Kind of she she has a good deal in common with the old woman from the Shining Houses, right? She's she's a a remnant of another time, and she's a figure of fun, and everybody kind of hates her, but they also feel sorry for her. So every year she throws this recital at her house and people come and she makes sandwiches and gives them old books that nobody reads. And it's all very sad, right? Well, this year, unexpectedly to the narrator, a group of children from a home for children with developmental disabilities shows up. And while she has said over and over again that this teacher is not a good teacher. She's she's too forgiving. She she's she's too accepting. She won't push anybody, and so nobody ever really gets good at playing the piano under her watch. Nevertheless, um, this one this one girl from the home is able to play this beautiful beautiful piece that just dumbfounds absolutely everybody. And here and here's what she says. Yep. This time the music establishes itself so effortlessly, with so little demand for attention, that we are hardly even surprised. What she plays is not familiar. It's something fragile, courtly, and gay that carries with it the freedom of a great unemotional happiness. And all that this girl does, but this is something you would not think could ever be done, is to play it so that this can be felt. All this can be felt, even in Miss Marsalis's living room on Bala Street on a preposterous afternoon. And then she says, you would think, now that at the very end of her life she's found someone whom she can teach, whom she must teach, to play the piano, she would light up with the importance of this discovery. But it seems that the girl's playing like this is something she always expected, and she finds it natural and satisfying. People who believe in miracles do not make much fuss when they actually encounter one. <laughs> And I, I think you have here a statement of sorts about faith, and it's not necessarily, necessarily religious faith, but it is faith that that this woman who looks ridiculous to all the world nevertheless finds this miracle that she always knew she that she would come, and she's been expecting it for so long that she doesn't even have to make a big deal about it when it comes. She has found the fulfillment to her life, and she doesn't have to uh, she doesn't have to act like that's what it is. Yeah, that's really good. That is interesting. And um, you'd mentioned the shiny houses uh, before too, and you know this is a very kind of maybe trite observation, but the the main character's basically ethical decision to not sign that petition is purely symbolic. There's nothing that I mean she's going to do that's going to stop this old woman's house. From it's a, being it's demolished. a lost cause. <laughs> It's a lost cause, and she doesn't even like the old woman, right? Herself, right? She's not uh, like she really has no sort of personal investment in this. But there's sort of a sense of uh, of just kind of fairness and right and wrong, and so the kind of the very basic do unto others sort of um, ethos that uh, like this one person like standing. Uh, pointlessly uh, against uh, what is really kind of cruelty it is a very kind of at least ethical act. And, and if um, in a religious context, I think it could be a religious one as well. So. Yeah. But overall, these are not, these are not religious stories. I mean, no. not, not the way Malamudes are, not the way Updikes are, not, not even the way Cathars are, but you know, that's okay. Yeah. They're so good. <laughs> Well, we, we've mostly talked about the things that jumped out at me about these stories. Uh, we should end. Normally, we'd go around the horn, but there's only two of us, so there's no horn to go around. Uh, we'll just pass it back and forth. Dan Danny, can you point out a couple of things that that struck you about these stories or read a passage or two if you feel like it? Yeah, I could do that. Um, there's like one moment. Like, I was talking to Nathan as we were sort of reading through this, and uh, you know, he was saying as a medievalist, he just wants something to happen, right? And so this is why he doesn't read 20th century fiction. Um, and, and so I said, well, there is one moment where you think something's going to happen and it doesn't. I kind of like to read that. It's in uh, Images. There's a, um, uh, a little girl who finds herself uh, fishing mink out of these traps in a river with her father. And, uh, and there's this moment where she's just sort of in her own thoughts while her father's leaning over the river, uh, picking up, cleaning these traps of mink. And, and, and she's observing, again, the landscape. 
Um, and out of that landscape comes a figure. So now the bank, uh, instead of willows, grew thick bushes higher than my head. I stayed on the path about halfway up the bank while my father went down to the water. When he bent over the trap, I could no longer see him. I looked around slowly and saw something else. Further along, further along and higher up the bank, a man was making his way down. He made no noise coming through the bushes and moved easily, as if he followed a path I could not see. At first, I could see just his head and the upper part of his body. He was dark with a high, bald forehead, hair long behind the ears, deep vertical creases in his cheeks. When the bushes thinned, I could see the rest of him, his long, clever legs, thinness, drab camouflaging clothes, and what he carried in his hand, gleaming in the, uh, where the sun caught it, a little axe or hatchet. I moved. I never moved to warn or call my father. The man crossed my path somewhere ahead, continuing down to the river. People say, say that they have been paralyzed by fear, but I was transfixed, as if struck by lightning. About what hit uh, and what hit me did not feel like fear so much as recognition. I was not surprised. This is the sight that does not surprise you. The thing you have always known was there, that comes so naturally, moving delicately and contentedly and in no hurry as if it was made in the first place from a wish of yours, a hope of something final, terrifying. All my life, I had known there was a man like this, and he was behind doors and around the corner at the dark end of a hall. So now I saw him and just waited, like a child in an old negative, electrified against the dark noon sky, with blazing hair and burned-out orphan Annie eyes. The man slipped down through the bushes to my father, and I never thought or even hoped for anything but the worst. My father did not know, when he straightened up, the man was not three feet away from him and hid from me. I heard my father's voice uh, come out after a moment's delay, quiet and neighborly. And so you're expecting something horrific, horrific, right? Uh, based on these characters' recognition of sort of the this like fatalism in, in the world. And, and her father says, hello, Joe. Well, Joe, I haven't seen you in a long time. And it turns out she just knows that he knows the guy, right? And so like nothing actually <laughs> happens from this, right? Uh, and so it's, it's at once you're expecting this sort of big moment of horror. Uh, and it's a very friendly moment of, uh, of just recognition and old friends getting together in a way. Uh, and so um, it's almost as if uh, it's almost a comical moment, but it's also um, a moment where I do think you see her dedication to art uh, shining through. And, and so the, the, the craft of the short story, uh, is, uh, on display there. I feel like, uh, she's like leading you down one way and surprising you with something else, uh, in this tiny little world. And, and I think that that's a, a really beautiful moment. And can I read one more? No, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, uh, and then I'll pass it on to you. Uh, and it's the, uh, the one about the, uh, the girl who's babysitting and she observes how wealthy people drink and, but she does she's never had alcohol before in her life. And so she, uh, doesn't realize that most of that is watered down. And so she sort of does like follows through the motions and gets like so drunk. She like, uh, throws up all over the place. Um, and so I just think the description is very funny. And so I, I would like to read that as a I don't know, a counterpoint. I feel like uh, talking about these stories, it's very easy to, to talk about them in these very serious ways. And this is very humorous, uh, I think, in a lot of ways. But it also does this, the work of the rest of these stories. From this point on, I have no continuous picture of what happened. My memories of the next hour or two are split into vivid and improbable segments with nothing but murk and uncertainty between them. I do remember lying on the bathroom floor, looking sideways at little six-sided six white tiles, which uh, lay together in such an admirable and logical pattern. Seeing them uh, with the brief broken gratitude and sanity of one who has just been torn to pieces with vomiting. Then I remember sitting on the stool in front of the, pool, uh, the hall phone, asking weakly for Joyce's number. Joyce was not home. I was told by her mother, a rather rattlebrain woman who didn't seem to notice a thing the matter, for which I felt weakly, mechanically grateful, that she was at Kay Stringer's house. I didn't know Kay's number, so I just asked the operator. I felt I couldn't risk looking down in the phone book. And then it, it sort of goes on to this uh, like description of this kind of wild party girl coming to the rescue, knowing how to get somebody sober and, and this sort of thing. But it's just a very humorous moment describing what it's like to be drunk for the first time. And, and it's, it's very kind of... Uh, 
lighthearted. That, of all the stories, I know that it's not the most lighthearted story there, but it's uh, that's a really lighthearted moment and and extremely comical and and, and well well described. And so yeah, uh, no, and two, I think I think that, that is probably the most lighthearted lighthearted story there, and the most yeah. lightheaded for that matter. <laughs> Well, I, I wanted to talk just briefly about Monroe's treatment of adolescence, which I think is, is one of the most sensitive I've ever read. There's a number of these stories where a it's a young woman usually is just perched on the edge of becoming, you know, a, a well, a young woman instead of a, of a girl. And, and she handles this with, with so much finesse and so much beauty and so much sadness because it's such a sad time. But the one that kills me is The Day of the Butterfly, wherein the uh, the narrator, Helen makes friends with an unpopular girl at school and she kind of makes friends with her by accident and yet because she's made friends with her she has this responsibility to her that she can't quite shake and this is unfortunate because Myra the girl is sick and has to go to the hospital um so the whole the whole school goes to visit her the whole class goes to visit her and they bring her present birthday presents even though it's not actually her birthday because the implication is she's not going to be alive for her birthday, but it's that's never actually said. Um, anyway, everybody leaves. Then Myra gives Helen one of her birthday gifts, and and Helen takes it. And she hears these children throwing snowballs outside the hospital. That's what I'm going to pick up. This sound made Myra her triumph and her bounty, and most of all her future, in which she had found this place for me, turn shadowy, turn dark. All the presents on the bed. The folded paper and ribbons, those guilt-tinged offerings, had passed into this shadow. They were no longer innocent objects to be touched, exchanged, accepted without danger. I didn't want to take the case now, but I could not think of how to get out of it. What lie to tell? I'll give it away, I thought. I won't ever play with it. I would let my little brother tear it apart. And that is that is just so sad to me and so accurate to what it's like to be 12 years old. <laughs> and and yes. to try to try to be friends with really anybody because you know I'm not sure what degree friendship is really possible at, at that age, but especially to be friends with someone who is unpopular, someone who exists outside of the society you want to live in, whatever society that is. It's just that's so brutal, but it, it it's it's a level of brutality that I don't think would even qualify as brutality for. Ernest Hemingway or Norman Mailer, you know, right? Yeah, it's it's brutality is in its in its perception, right? It's so perceptive of the human condition, and, and she's able to translate that uh, through like these this beautiful like simple prose that um and that the brutality is just truth, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's Alice Monroe, or at least that's her first book, or at least that's a small fraction of her first book. Uh, I'm sure we have missed a million things in either this book, or you can tell us that we were foolish to read the first one instead of one of her later ones. Please um, send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Um, our, our website address is christianhumanist.org. We are taking next week off because Nathan will be at Disney World. I suppose you and I could do another two-person episode but we're not going to yeah thank you okay well, yeah we'll take thanksgiving off yeah, yeah that's a good enough reason so so uh, what are we talking about the week after that danny uh we are going to talk about george orwell's essay um politics in the english language this was a uh, apparently a request uh and i recently taught it uh in my class and i think it's uh, it seems newly relevant to me and, and so i would like to sort of uh hash that out with a couple smart guys Cool. I haven't read that book in a long or that uh, essay in a long time, so I'm looking forward to going back to it. In the meantime, like I said, send us an email, come see our blog, like us on Facebook, however you want to get in touch with us. Uh, for Danny Anderson and the absent Nathan Gilmore, and I suppose the absent David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, "Let your sins be strong and let your faith be strong." I see the crystal raindrops fall, and the beauty of it all is when the sun comes shining through. To make those rainbows in my mind When I think of you sometime And I want to spend some time with you Just the two of us We can make it if we try Just the two of us Just the two of us Just the two of us Building castles in the sky